This is Right From The Deep. I'm Karen Ball. And I'm Erin Taylor-Young. And this is the podcast from writers for writers, answering the question, why am I doing this? Right. As writers, editors, and a former literary agent, we're in the deep with you, encouraging you and equipping you to find your truest story in the deep places. Get our show notes and more, including a free audio download on how to safeguard your writer's heart at writefromthedeep.com. Hey guys, here's what's happening at Right From The Deep. A big thank you to our patrons on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that helps us greatly (laughs) because it helps creators to get paid. It takes time and money to put these podcasts together, pay for the hosting and all that stuff. So our patrons on Patreon truly help make this podcast possible. And you guys can find out more information at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Right From The Deep. Thanks so much to our December sponsor of the month, Katie Astor. Yay! She's hard at work on her novel, Kingdom of Azure, and we're excited to see how it turns out. We are. And another thanks for our sponsorship from the Novel Marketing Podcast with excellent host Thomas Umstead Jr. It is the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. We know and trust Thomas, and his podcast is so full of great information and advice. I'm not kidding, guys. Like Novel Marketing's Ten Commandments of Book Marketing, which we've been bringing to you. So this week, we're talking about commandment number six, thou shalt own thine own platform. Indeed. You guys only need to look around at what's happening in the world today where, you know, social media platforms can just cancel you in a heartbeat and you can lose access to those readers that you might have spent years accumulating or those platforms can suddenly make you pay like anytime they want for this audience that you worked so hard to cultivate and they can make you pay to see your posts. And obviously this has happened. So that makes growing your platform on those types of ground and unwise investment. You need to own your platform. So the two most important things for you to own are your website and your newsletter list. This is what you should be spending time and money developing. Your website is your home base. It's a place where readers can find you, a place you own, so it can never be taken away from you. And your newsletter is how you communicate directly with your readers. Again, those email addresses can never be taken away from you by some company that just suddenly arbitrarily decides to cancel you. So for more on book promotion and platform help, listen to Novel Marketing in your favorite podcast app or at novelmarketing.com. And it's my turn to talk about a wonder today. You guys, I have a simple wonder today. It's the sun. (laughs) I mean, did you ever have a stretch of cloudy days that just went on and on and on? I used to live in a part of the country that had like a very, very low number of sunshine days. And I just, I'm so excited every day. I see the blue sky here. It's sunshine. It, this is a beauty. To me, it's a wonder. It's a simple wonder, this beauty that God enables us to enjoy, this happy blue sky and the sunshine. It feels so optimistic to me that I want to thank God for it every day. You see a pretty sunrise. You see a pretty sunset. It's lovely. You know, the Bible tells us that God determines the number of stars, and He sets them all in place, and He's keeping watch over them right now. He's making it happen. And I also love Psalm 148.3. It says, "'Praise Him, sun and moon.'" 
praise him, all you shining stars. Guys, the sun praises God, and we can too. So there you go. That's my wonder today, the sun. And now, here's the show. Welcome, listeners. We're glad that you decided to join us here in the deep. You know, as we're recording this, it's become the season of Advent. And during this time of year, lots of Christians celebrate Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, and it literally means coming, or we can think of it as arrival. And one of the definitions, even in our friend Miriam Webster, is the coming of Christ at the incarnation. So, with this podcast, we're hoping you'll take some time for rest and reflection during the Christmas season to stop, even just for the duration of our time together here, if nothing else, to rejoice and focus on the miracle of the Incarnation, the miracle of God with us. We hope it will refresh your perspective on how amazing our God is and why He breathed life and creativity into us and why we write. The Almighty the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Think about it. He came to this earth as a tiny, helpless baby to restore the relationship we broke, to make a way for us to have peace with God. So listen in as we share scriptures and quotes for you to immerse yourself in the incarnation. And let's start with Colossians 1, 13 through 20. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I love the focus of that passage. I know people don't think of that as an incarnation passage necessarily or a Christmas passage, but I love it because it tells us that Jesus is fully God and always was fully God. It's important not to confuse the incarnation as being the point where Jesus came into existence because that isn't the case. He was always in existence. Joseph Schumann stresses this in an article called Five Truths About the Incarnation, and we'll have links to these things in the show notes. Um, Schumann writes, The virgin conception and birth in Bethlehem does not mark the beginning of the Son of God. Rather, it marks the eternal Son entering physically into our world and becoming one of us. Schumann also wants us to remember that the Incarnation is still a mystery in many ways. He writes, Answering how it could be that one person could be both fully God and fully man is not a question that the scriptures focus on. And he's right. I mean, the scriptures don't explain that. There's so much that we don't know and understand. And frankly, I think we waste our time trying to understand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you listen 
to a scripture that Schumann quotes. Deuteronomy 29.29, Moses writes this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Guys, reflecting on the incarnation means to embrace the mystery and to know there are things we will understand, but there are some things we will never understand because they are the secret things of God. Right. And here's a passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, and it's in the message translation, and it also speaks to the mystery. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, even though the how of the incarnation is still a mystery, consider, guys, the blessing that we have. We're on the other side of Jesus's birth on earth, you know, just as those that Peter was writing to were. We don't have Jesus in physical form walking among us, but we know the person and time of God's coming to us, the time the prophets spoke about, the time that the prophets could only imagine and wonder at. We have the accounts of what happened when God became flesh and when he suffered and died and rose again and established this kingdom of God, the already not yet kingdom, you know? And guys, this is what we write about, right? This time that we're living in, when Jesus is active in spirit in this world, doing his work of redemption in the lives of us who inhabit this world, this physical world. But what a time of wonder made possible by these prophecies that have come to pass, these prophecies of God made flesh, of His kingdom coming. When you consider the incarnation, when you really focus on it and and spend time thinking about it and praying about it, you can't avoid the staggering reality of what Jesus in becoming human had to give up. I mean, think about Philippians 2, 5 through 8, and this also is from the message. When the time came, Jesus set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Here's some more great quotes that we found about what the incarnation meant for Jesus. The ways Jesus goes about loving and saving the world are personal, nothing disembodied, nothing abstract, nothing impersonal, incarnate flesh and blood, relational, particular, and local. And that's by Eugene Peterson. Elizabeth Elliot, one of my favorite writers, wrote, Jesus loved the will of his Father. He embraced the limitations, the necessities, the conditions, the very chains of his humanity as he walked and worked here on earth, fulfilling moment by moment his divine commission and the stern demands of his incarnation. Never was there a word or even a look of complaint. Mm. And that's why he was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> J.I. Packer writes, 
The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. John F. Walward was a Christian theologian, a pastor, and the president of Dallas Theological Seminary from 1952 to 1986. He had this to say, to achieve the divine purpose of becoming the Savior, the divine glory needed to be veiled. Christ voluntarily, moment by moment, submitted to human limitations apart from sin. The humiliation was temporary. The incarnation was everlasting. Henry Law, author and pastor of a church in England in the late 1800s, said this, What self-denial, what self-abasement, what self-emptying, he whom no infinitudes can hold, is contained within infant's age and infant's form. Can it be that the great I am that I am shrinks into our flesh? Man, I love these images and the way that they're saying them. Augustine of Hippo said, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. This comes from a preface that C.S. Lewis wrote to the first part of a new translation of the New Testament that was done by J.B. Phillips. And C.S. Lewis wrote this, The New Testament in the original Greek is not a work of literary art. It is not written in a solemn ecclesiastical language. It is written in the sort of Greek which was spoken over the Eastern Mediterranean after Greek had become an international language and therefore lost its real beauty and subtlety. In it, we see Greek used by people who have no real feeling for Greek words because Greek words are not the words they spoke when they were children. It is sort of basic Greek, a language without roots in the soil, a utilitarian, commercial, and administrative language. Does this shock us? It ought not to, except as the incarnation itself ought to shock us. The same divine humility which decreed that God should become a baby at a peasant woman's breast and later an arrested field preacher in the hands of the Roman police decreed also that he should be preached in a vulgar, prosaic, and unliterary language. If you can stomach the one, you can stomach the other. The incarnation is in that sense an irreverent doctrine. Christianity, in that sense, an incurably irreverent religion. When we expect that it should have come before the world in all the beauty that we now feel in the authorized version, we are as wide of the mark as the Jews were in expecting that the Messiah would come as a great earthly king. The real sanctity, the real beauty and sublimity of the New Testament as of Christ's life, are of a different sort, miles deeper or further in. Further into the deep, friends, just like we try to go. I love C.S. Lewis. 
You can't read anything that he writes without being moved or convicted. J.B. Phillips, who wrote the Phillips version of the New Testament that C.S. Lewis was talking about in that foreword, wrote, The modern intelligent mind, which has had its horizons widened in dozens of different ways, has got to be shocked afresh by the audacious central fact that as a sober matter of history, God became one of us. Now, this is from a nativity sermon that St. John Chrysostom, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, did. What shall I say, and how shall I describe this birth to you? For this wonder fills me with astonishment. The Ancient of Days has become an infant. He who sits upon the sublime and heavenly throne now lies in a manger. And Cyril of Jerusalem said, The bread of heaven came down to earth to feed the hungry. You know, we've given a lot of quotes about sacrifice and the humiliation of the incarnation and the wonder of it. But what about the motivation? Every good story, as you know, fiction or nonfiction, is driven by people with reasons for doing what they do. So what was God's motivation for the incarnation? Well, how about we'll look at this verse to see. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but he have eternal life. You probably know that one, John 3.16, and we often think of that as a salvation verse, but it's also an Advent verse because it tells why God became flesh and made his dwelling among us because of God's great and unfailing love for us. There's a marvelous book out there called The Shepherd, looks at Psalm 23. It's written by W. Philip Keller. It has so many wonderful truths and so many beautifully expressed thoughts. And here's one of them. Here we commemorate the greatest and deepest demonstration of true love the world has ever known. For God looked down upon sorrowing, struggling, sinning humanity and was moved with compassion for the contrary sheep-like creatures he had made. In spite of the tremendous personal cost it would entail to himself to deliver them from their dilemma, he chose deliberately to descend and live amongst them that he might deliver them. This meant laying aside his splendor, his position, his prerogatives as the perfect and faultless one. He knew he would be exposed to terrible privation, to ridicule, to false accusations, to rumor, gossip, and malicious charges that branded him as a glutton, drunkard, friend of sinners, and even an imposter. It entailed losing his reputation. It would involve physical suffering, mental anguish, and spiritual agony. In short, his coming to earth as a Christ, as Jesus of Nazareth, was a straightforward case of utter self-sacrifice that culminated in the cross of Calvary. The laid-down life, the poured-out blood, were the supreme symbols of total selflessness. This was love. This was God. This was divinity in action, delivering men from their own utter selfishness, their own stupidity, their own suicidal instincts as lost sheep, unable to help themselves. <laughs> That's great. And here's Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love that, the hope of eternal life. God wanted to give us hope and to be our hope. Charles Spurgeon, again, another man who writes with an anointed hand, says, He who was born at Bethlehem is God and God with us. God, there lies the majesty. God with us, there lies the mercy. God, there in his glory. God with us. Therein is grace. God alone might well strike us with terror, but God with us inspires us with hope and confidence. And that's from his book, God With Us, Reflections on the Incarnation. And Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I love that. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that Jesus has come to me. He's a person. It's God. He's not a religion. It's not a set of rules. God is relational, and he gives us rest. It's another motivation, hope and rest. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But then the chosen time came. God sent his son. A woman gave birth to him. He was born under the authority of the law. He came to set free those who were under the authority of the law. God wanted us to be adopted as children with all the rights children have. That's what he has done for us. And another thing I think about when I look at those verses, even though Paul's talking about the law, like he's talking about the Old Testament rules and the Ten Commandments and all of that, but this passage also reminds me that Jesus was born under the broken human institutions right. at that time. It was a brutal Roman government. There was bitter oppression. But what, what did he address all of that time? It was the spiritual condition of the people. And even though he did come to heal people, that wasn't the main emphasis. I think the healings were more about showing his authority, but right. to address those very spiritual issues. So at Christmas, you guys, even with all the upheaval of our world and the political problems and the broken institutions, let's make sure we take time to look at our spiritual condition as Christ did when God became man in our broken world. That's a great point. In 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, we can read, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. It doesn't stop with being saved. Listen to that again. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
this grace, this glory, this Christ came not because we deserve it, but because God's purpose and grace were at action. In the incarnation, we see how endless God's love is for every one of his children. Yeah. And, you know, when we think about all the incarnation was and, and is, is it any wonder that when the angels came to bring the news on earth, like a whole host of heavenly angels bursts into song, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. <laughs> but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So stop, friends, right now. Unless, of course, you're listening to us as you're driving, then wait until you're home and you're safe. Whenever you're in a place where you can do that, stop and imagine it. You're a shepherd. You're settled back against a nice big boulder, gazing over your flock of sheep, watchful, but ready to rest. And suddenly, a light brighter than anything you've ever seen splits the darkness. Startled, you look up and then fall on your knees for there, all around you are angels singing the sweetest, most powerful Gloria in Excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. You jump up and you run to Bethlehem to a stable. And there, in the straw, amidst the livestock, is a baby. And as you stand awestruck and stare at that tiny bundle of holiness, you hear, as we all do today, the call that rings through our hearts and spirits. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come, adore on bended knee Christ the Lord, the newborn King. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. You can find previous episodes and more resources at rightfromthedeep.com. And I bet you know someone who needs this podcast, so please share it with them. So until next time, embrace the deep. Your writing and your life will never be the same. Mm -hmm.